Well, amen again and good morning. Welcome to King's Cross if you've come in in the last few minutes. Uh, my name is Clint. I'm one of the elders here at King's Cross. If you're a visitor, especially if it's your first time with us, I'm going to give you a special welcome, let, let you know that we're glad that you're here. It's a joy to us to have you, and whether you are uh, here looking for a church, you're a Christian, you've just moved to the area, perhaps you're a faithful pastor on sabbatical, welcome Josh and family. Perhaps you're not a Christian, and you're just wondering what you believe about God and what the Christian church believes about God. Again, whoever you are, we regularly say, however you got here, welcome. We're glad you're here. It's a good and safe place for you to be uh, as we study and hear from God's word. We pray that you'd be encouraged uh, and drawn even to God himself. Now, I do want to uh, let you know, uh, it's interesting when we talk about grumbling, so I don't want to say this in a grumbling spirit. Uh, praise God. Uh, help me, Lord. Uh, but I know that it's full, uh, so welcome. We're glad you're here. Lord willing, uh, either hopefully the 24th or 31st, we'll be able to move back into the sanctuary. There'll be a little more space. You haven't grumbled this time. Being in the lobby, this air conditioning unit's not built for all these people, and you haven't been grumbling I might have been guilty of it a little bit. So, Lord, forgive me and help me. Uh, but again, know that, Lord willing, we'll be moving into our new space and have a lot more room uh, sooner than later. Excited about that. Let me pray again and ask for God's help, and we'll jump into his word. Father, we come to you again in the name of the Lord Jesus, the very bread of life, asking, feed our souls. Holy Spirit, nourish us with your word. Help me to be faithful to your word. Anything that I say that's not of you, I pray people would forget. But everything that is from you, I pray people would submit to as if you spoke audibly to them face to face. Help us sit underneath your word. Let it correct and judge and encourage and exhort us. May we not be so arrogant that we stand over it and judge it. By your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Grumbling. Complaining. Whining. I'm not talking about groaning out in painful prayer. We talked about that last week. I'm not talking about bringing your complaints to God. That's a good thing to do as you trust him to do the right thing with those complaints. I'm not talking about whimpering through pain in this broken world such that you don't know what to do. That's a good thing to cry out to your father who loves you and cares for you. I'm talking about when life doesn't go your way and your heart doesn't lean towards God but away from him. I've heard it said that you can see the true character of a person and if you want to see that true character of a person... Just see how they respond when they don't get what they want. See what happens and what comes out of their mouth when they get told no. Toddlers whine and grumble when they're told no. Amen, sis. Toddlers whine and grumble when they're told no. Plenty of adults do too. Some more than others. Children grumble about parents. Parents about children. Spouses grumble about one another. Employees grumble about employers and employers about employees. Coaches about players and players about coaches. And social media seems to be a mass gathering of grumblers. <laughs> How often do negative circumstances in your life result in grumbling from your mouth? I wonder how many of you in this room, it's full today, confessed grumbling as a sin during our confession and corporate prayer just a moment ago. I wonder how many people in this room have ever confessed grumbling as sin. I wonder how many of us actually underestimate the wretchedness of the sin that is grumbling or complaining. I don't think we understand how serious this is. Grumbling defames the glory of God. It discourages those around us and it destroys our Christian witness. Grumbling 
is a result of unbelief in the sovereign grace and goodness of God to daily provide what we need. That's why you grumble. You don't believe the sovereign God is gracious and good enough to take care of your needs, and so you and I, we grumble. Grumbling again is complaining that God is not using his power, his knowledge, his character, the way that he ought to be using it to govern and rule our lives. Grumbling says the sovereign king of all isn't very good at all. This is why the apostle Paul in Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This morning we travel back into the wilderness where God is teaching Israel a number of lessons, valuable lessons about life with God in a broken world. And this week, just as similar to, or similar to last week, we see Israel get another test and fail yet again as they continue to grumble. And yet we see God's sovereign grace as the solution for Israel's groaning or grumbling and for our grumbling as well. And so as we jump, we're going to do all of chapter 16, so we read the first portion. We're going to cover a lot of ground. And really this text is kind of difficult to break up because there's like a bazillion different lessons along the way about grumbling. And it ties into grumbling, and it ties in grumbling into not trusting God's good providence to provide for all that we need. And so we're going to kind of break it up into two major chunks uh, but underneath those chunks, there's going to be lots of different lessons. So we're going to kind of read, make some comments, and keep it moving. First major chunk, if you will. Sounds very intellectual there. Major chunk. We must be honest about our grumbling guilt. We must be honest about our grumbling guilt. Again, chapter 16, verse 1 through 8. Let me read it again and set the context. They set out from Elim. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Now, the word sin there, you might think like there's a deep meaning. It's not. It's just, so think of the word Sinai. They're on the way to Sinai. It's a shorter version of that. It's just a location. It has no meaning of sin the way we think about it in English, all right? So don't read into that more that's there. The people of Israel came into the wilderness of sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month. So we're about a month into their wilderness journey after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. I want you to notice that. Last time it said some people grumbled. Chapter 15, 22, 27, there was grumbling. This time it's the whole congregation. Now remember, we're talking a million plus people. Everybody gathers together and grumbling is contagious. That's one of the problems with it. That's why I said it defames God's glory and it destroys and discourages those around us because it's contagious. Again, look at politics today. Politics is very united around we share the same grumbles. <laughs> Like, hey, you grumble about that? Come grumble with me. At some level, that's our day, right? So the whole congregation comes together to make a grumble, to complain against Moses and Aaron. And the people, verse 3 of Israel, said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly, the whole congregation, with hunger. Now, I want you to look at a few things, a few lessons we learn, evidences of failing this test. So again, we'll see in just a couple of verses that God, again, is testing them to see if they will walk in his law, to see if they'll trust his good providence to meet their needs and take care of them. And again and again, we're going to see them fail this test. But I want you to know that we'll see evidences of what it looks like to fail the test of trusting God's good providence to take care of you and walking in his word. Evidence number one is irrational exaggeration of present suffering. You know you're grumbling if you see the evidence of irrational exaggeration of present suffering. Now, I'm not saying there's not suffering. Just like last week, they were thirsty. They had no water. That's legitimate suffering. This week, they're hungry. They have no food. That's legitimate suffering. But there's an irrational exaggeration 
Notice when they say, have you brought us out here to die of starvation? Even think about how often we use language and it's meaningless. Yo, I'm starving. Let's go get something to eat. More than likely, nobody in this room has ever experienced what it feels like to be starving. <laughs> so we tend to exaggerate with the words, use hyperbole just to express I'm hungry. Right? And that's, that's an, hyperbole is okay. That's an okay thing to do when everybody knows that's what we're doing. But in this case, there is this exaggeration of the present suffering. Moses, Aaron, have y'all brought us out here to die of starvation? Okay. Didn't we just see God make bitter water sweet? <laughs> like, didn't they just walk in between two walls of water across the Red Sea? Didn't we see God faithfully spare them through ten plagues because he's their special covenant people, though they didn't deserve it in all of those ten plagues? And didn't he use Moses to be the deliverer to do all of that? And yet they're saying, you're not going to take care of did, Moses, did you bring us out here to starve us? Yes, I opened up the Red Sea with God's grace so that we could come over here in the wilderness and you could die of starvation. Like, it makes no sense. It's irrational to ask this question, to make this accusation. And this is what we do when we're grumbling. It's irrational not to trust God to provide what you need for today when he always has in the past. Now, you might not have agreed with him on what you needed in that day or in this day, but he's always taken care of you and provided and met every need that you had to be sustained to this point because you're here. So I know that's true. So ir irrationally, we will complain and, and act like our present suffering is even worse than it is even when it is legitimate suffering. So pay attention to yourself when you're exaggerating. Remember the first time I remember feeling convicted of sin, of particularly the sin of exaggeration. I was a kid. I was in elementary school. I wasn't raised in church, so it's an interesting dynamic. My father led me to faith. We had a couple horrible experiences at church. So we didn't go to church. He taught me a little bit of Bible that he knew. But just God, by his grace and, and just the nature of what he had done, I remember uh, I played baseball. I loved diving and sliding head first. I just enjoyed it, but that meant I always had scabs on my elbows from the dirt cutting me up. And one day I was in the front yard. I was playing, and I, and I think I dove for a ball or something down in the ditch, and it ripped off a scab, and I was bleeding pretty bad. And I remember going to school the next day and telling a friend about this. And as I'm telling them the story, I said the whole ditch was covered in blood. <laughs> it's like, that's not, that wasn't true. <laughs> Like, there really was a scab. I really did bleed, but it wasn't that bad. Now, in that moment as a little kid in elementary school, I do remember thinking, like, that's a lie. Like, exaggeration is a lie. I misrepresented the truth of what happened for some other reason. Now, for me, and as a little kid that day, it was, I was just trying to impress my friends. I wanted the approval of man. But what is Israel doing right here? Because exaggeration often is because I'm grumbling against God because I don't like how he's governing my life. And so I use big sweeping words like, why does this always happen to me? Why does she never do that? Why does he do that every single time? You should pay attention to these words of exaggeration. They're probably revealing a grumbling spirit and a grumbling heart. A grumbler's favorite words are every time, never, and always. You get into an argument with your spouse. Let me tell you one of the dumbest things to do. Use any of those words. <laughs> You want a happy marriage, stay away from those words. But also, if you actually want to tell the truth, more often than not, you should stay away from those words. They're usually not true. That's usually an exaggeration because you're grumbling. So again, evidence of failing the test is irrational exaggeration of present suffering. But it's also, notice, irrational interpretation of the past. Notice it like, yo, did you bring us out here to starve to death? It was better when we was back in Egypt and we had the meat pots. Now, I like the sound of meat pots <laughs> and the bread. 
So these meat pots, it reminds me, we are in uh, Pillar Network. I'm on the board, and uh, we have a board retreat. And there's some restaurant we go to in Florida that's, I don't know what the name of it is, whatever. It's more expensive than, I normally go to normal restaurants. This is a, a good restaurant. But at this restaurant, they bring out this pot that's like a grill with, with meat on top of it while it's still cooking. It's like a meat pot. It's incredible. So again, I, I see this situation, and I get, I get they're saying, no, no, there was meat and there was bread. You took care of us. But there's an irrational interpretation of the past. This whole book began in, in Exodus chapter 2 with them groaning out under the oppression of slavery. And God heard their groaning. So they were groaning because they were being impressed and beaten and taken advantage of. And they were enslaved. And they groaned out and God heard them and God has set them free. And now they're saying, yo, but the meat back then was good. <laughs> like, are you going to bring us out here to die? I'd rather go back to slavery to have something to eat than trust the God who's taking care of me and just turn some bitter water sweet? But this is what uh, grumbling does. It makes you exaggerate the past. You look at the past with rose-colored glasses. You look back to your life before Christ, and you only see positive things, and then you grumble to him about your life right now. You're not looking accurately at the past. When you didn't know Christ, you were enslaved to sin. You went to bed at night, and your mind spun and turned because you weren't satisfied. And everywhere you looked, it left you longing. But you're going to look back to that life before Christ like, yeah, but I didn't have to go to church. <laughs> intentional or irrational exaggeration of the present, but also irrational interpretation of the past. You're not thinking clearly when you're grumbling. Alexander McLaren said, Our present miseries and our past blessings are the themes on which unbelief harps. Our present miseries and our past blessings are the themes on which unbelief harps. It's a rational exaggeration of present sufferings, irrational interpretation of the past. But even worse than these, irrational assassination of God's power and character. Notice again, if you look back at verses 8 and 9, I mean verse 7, uh, end of 7, Moses says, For what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 8, And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. When you grumble by irrationally, exaggerating your present suffering and irrationally interpreting your past blessings. You're not grumbling against the leaders that are over you. You're grumbling against the Lord. So even in this moment, what we learn and see from Israel is grumblers love to complain about leadership. This is a normal thing. If you want to grumble, a very easy target of grumbling are those who are seeking to lead you. Now, this doesn't mean leaders are perfect. Moses surely wasn't. We know that. We've studied. We've seen his errors. We've seen his sin. So it's not the same as criticizing or disagreeing with. But, but when you criticize or disagree or, or with a decision of a leader, but you're grateful for them, you do that in one way. When you're grumbling, Moses is like, you ain't grumbling against Moses. You're grumbling against the Lord. Your issue is that you don't trust the God who sovereignly placed these people in your life for you to follow them. Your issue is not with the leaders. Your issue is with the Lord. One pastor friend of mine has said that he's concerned, particularly during uh, 2020 and thereafter. He's having a conversation and he says, I'm concerned that in a decade, so many churches are going to look up and say, what happened to all the good pastors? And he said, the answer is going to be you ran them all off. He said, in all of my 35 plus years of ministry, I know more pastors leaving ministry right now than ever before. Why? Because today, to be a pastor 
Generally, this is not a complaint against King's Cross, FYI. This church has been so kind in not grumbling. But I am letting you know, this is the human heart. This is in all of us. We're all tempted to this. And I hear this in conversations across the board. But to be a pastor today means you're supposed to be an expert in politics, pandemics, psychology, parenting, race relations, technology, sociology, successful business practices, and public relations. Also, you better make sure you know the Bible in and out, and you better respond to my text message emails immediately when I send them to you. <laughs> I mean, it's impossible. And so you have pastors that are like, it doesn't matter what I say. I need to anticipate there are going to be people angry on this side and say that, angry on this side and say that. It doesn't matter what I say. Grumbling against leaders is very natural for the heart that doesn't trust God. And again, this doesn't mean pastors are ever perfect or don't make mistakes. You can disagree with your leaders. You can disagree with pastors and do it in a heart of gratitude, having the conversation about the disagreement, or you can do it with a heart of grumbling against God because you don't trust his hand. And this is Israel actually told on herself. Did you notice in verse 3? They said, would it had not been better if we died by the hand of the Lord? So she reveals in, in this congregational complaining against Moses and Aaron, it's a passive-aggressive slap to God's face. The hand of the Lord crushed the Egyptians. Why didn't he just crush us too? Moses is right to say, your issue is not with Moses and Aaron. Your issue is with Yahweh. So again, we must be honest. We are all guilty of grumbling. And ultimately, we're guilty of grumbling against God. We see that. In this irrational exaggeration of suffering in the present, irrational interpretation of the past, and in our rational assault on the very character and goodness of God when we complain. So then what's the solution? If we're all guilty at this point, and if you're being honest, I believe that you know that you are, what's the solution? Second portion of our sermon. I couldn't say big chunk again because BT would have made fun of me. Second portion of our sermon. We need reminding of God's sovereign grace. We need reminding of God's sovereign grace. Look again at verse 9 through 12. And we're going to go through and see a number of observations of God's grace. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people in Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, praise God. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. We need reminding of God's sovereign grace. We need reminders. Reminder number one, we need to remember he pursues sinners. You need to remember when you realize and you're convicted, I am a grumbler. I am guilty. You need to remember our God pursues sinners. He pursues sinners. We see this when he, literally the response is, come near. Think about this. The entire congregation is grumbling, and God's response isn't, I'm sick of y'all. Get away from me. It's, come here. Bring them near. He pursues sinners. This is our God. And this is true for those who are in Christ. Paul uses the same logic, Romans 5.10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled should be saved by his life. So God is like, no, no, I brought you out of slavery in Egypt. I didn't set you free to give up on you. I didn't set you free to get sick of you while you're grumbling. I set you free to sanctify you and grow you. You're grumbling. You're failing the test. Come here. Come near to me. Our God is a God who pursues sinners. McLaren again says, faith is the condition of our receiving his highest gifts. 
But even unbelief touches his heart with pity. And what can he give to it? He does, if it may be melted into trust. The farther men stray from him, the more tender and penetrating his recalling voice. We multiply transgressions, he multiplies mercy. He pursues us, he pursues sinners. And notice he pursues us into his glorious presence. They see his presence in the cloud. The cloud that protected them from Egyptians ar- or from Pharaoh's army. The cloud that got them through and set, was with them. This presence, this intimate presence of God, God let them know I am with you. They look and they see it. So he says, come near to me. I am near to you and reveals his very presence. So he pursues sinners and brings them into his glorious presence. Rebelling Christian here today, do you not hear the beckoning call of God? Like the prodigal son in Luke 15, come home. Do you not know that he's out on the front porch waiting for you to come home and hug you while you're covered in the pig slop of your sin? You stink. Your life stinks. It doesn't satisfy. He's waiting. He's near. He's saying, come home. Come back. Turn away from your sin and come back to my presence. He draws near. He pursues sinners. And notice he does this so that you might know him more. At the end of verse 12, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This has been the whole point of Exodus. Yahweh is revealing who he is. He's bringing glory to his name by judging his enemies, Egypt, and by saving his people, Israel. Then you shall know I am God because of my mercy and how I pursue sinners. Even Jesus himself said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So again, we need reminding when we're convicted of our grumbling hearts and our grumbling sin, we need to remember he pursues sinners come near. But we also need to remember He provides for sinners' daily needs. Look at verse 13 to 21. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. Omer's around a couple leaders, a little over. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over to the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it to the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with him. Morning by morning they gathered it each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. So now we see, and we need reminders as we're grumbling, that he provides for sinners daily needs. He provides for daily needs. Now he gives instructions. Gather as much as you need. And notice some gather more than they need, but then like when they get to the crib to eat, it's like, huh, I only have as much as I need. It's interesting how this happens. He's making sure he's involved individually, intimately, knowing each individual need of his children. He knows what you need. It's interesting. uh, He rained down manna. He rains down quail. And then Psalm 78 recounts God's gracious provision supernaturally in this way for his people. Their rebellion, their grumbling and complaining, his wrath and judgment, and yet more of his grace and mercy. And so we read Psalm 78, verse 21, a summary of this even experience. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet, 
He commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. He responded to their rebellious grumbling with raining down the bread of angels. You need to know the grace of our God. You go grumbling and complaining, deserving his judgment. He gives you healthy duck donuts. <laughs> now that's grace. <laughs> like this, this fine flake-like material, this sweet to the taste we find out. The bread of angels is what he does for those who are guilty of grumbling. You need to be reminded of his grace. This God has more grace than you realize. You don't deserve to have your daily needs met, and yet he meets them. He provides for sinners daily needs. And again, some gather more, some less. They all end up with what they needed. Paul quotes from this later in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 15. It says, hey, if you have leftovers, and he's talking to the church in Corinth and talking about generosity. If you've got extra, give it away. Be generous with it, not greedy. Christians aren't hoarders. <laughs> we aren't those who are like, yo, I want to build up as much as I can get for me. So no, no, no. If the Lord gives us extra, we're happy to give it away. Which is why we see the problem. Some of them, it is, it's not that they had extra. He gave them what they needed. But they're like, yo, I'm going to stay back off of it and save for some, some more for tomorrow just in case he doesn't provide tomorrow. Even their unbelief. You've given me something, but I don't want to trust you'll take care of me tomorrow. Grumbling hearts are always greedy hearts. We always want more today just in case God forgets tomorrow. But Yahweh's teaching daily dependence upon his sovereign grace to provide what we need physically so that we understand he's provided what we need spiritually. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read and find out looking back on these days, what God was doing with it. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Y'all never seen this before. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So he's giving them daily manna, providing for them physically in order to teach them, you need to run and trust me and my word daily. That spiritually, I'm nourishing your soul physically. I can do that supernaturally, but it's my word. I mean, physically, but I'm going to nourish your soul with my word. You need to cling to, eat from, receive from the word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. This is a test to see would they obey his word. So again, remember, he pursues sinners. Remember, he provides for sinners daily needs. But thirdly, remember, he provides rest for sinners. He provides rest for sinners. Look at verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. Supernatural miracle. So he's done something different, demonstrating God is sovereignly in control over the provision of the manna, but also over the provision of the rest. And it did not stink. that There were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. 
On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Good night. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in this place that no one go out of place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, God established a pattern of six days of work and then rest in creation. He's demonstrating even that right now with Israel. And we'll talk more about that when we study the fourth commandment. Uh, when we jumped into the, the Ten Commandments, Lord willing, that'll be in January. We'll be back in Matthew in the fall. Well, we'll study more of the, the, the Jewish Sabbath, how Christ fulfills the law, and how that transforms the Sabbath and the Christian Lord's Day and how those things go together. We'll talk about all that when we jump into the, to the Ten Commandments. But what I want you to see today is that he provides rest. I want you to notice God is providing rest for his people even in the valley of the wilderness. Even while they're suffering, he says, I'm concerned about your rest. He's commanding them to rest and trust in his provision for rest and his provision of rest. So he's providing a day for their rest. And he's saying, I'm providing rest for you as a gift for you. You need it. You need to rest. You're not God. You're not sovereign. You need to trust me daily for your food, not weekly for your food, not monthly for your food, not annually. For, you need to trust me every single day for your physical and spiritual nourishment, and you also need rest. Why? What is he teaching? What does the psalmist say? Unless the Lord builds the house, Psalm 27.1, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Say, no, no, I give to my beloved sleep. Beloved, did you know God wants you to sleep? He wants you to rest. And he's provided, he's built your body, he's built the the world to orient in a way that you would work and rest. But again, Israel fails the test as they go out to gather on the Sabbath. We should think about this a little bit. Grumbling is unbelief in God's sovereign goodness now. Anxiety is like grumbling's twin sibling. It's unbelief in God's sovereign goodness in the future. So grumbling is I don't trust your sovereign sovereign goodness to me right now. Anxiety is I don't trust that when I get to the future, your sovereign goodness and grace will be there to provide for me then. And so then what happens when we are sinning in both of these ways? We don't rest Because we refuse to trust God's provision. Often we are exhausted because we're working when we should be resting. We're often exhausted from trusting in our own ability to provide what we want while not trusting his ability to provide what we need. That's why you're so tired. Because you don't believe he will give you what you need, so you're working to get more of what you want. Because you think your wants are what you need. And this is often why we're exhausted. This is often why we overwork. This is often why you can't sleep and your mind is racing at night. Because you don't believe the sovereign God is good and cares for you and will take care of you. Now listen, there are seasons of life. Look, King's Cross got a ton of babies. Look, plenty of mamas and daddies ain't sleeping right now. I'm not saying all not sleeping is sin. I'm not saying there's certain moments in life where God calls us to do things in our bodies. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying our God is a gracious God, and he's called us to rest. He wants us to go to sleep. He wants us to sleep hard. And when we wake up every morning, have the experience like, yo, he held the whole cosmos together while you were asleep. (laughs) Like he doesn't need you at all, not even a little bit. (laughs) Like he's got it. Sleep teaches you that. Sleep reminds you, I don't have to be sovereign. I don't have to be in control. 
My God has built me to rest, to demonstrate I can trust him for my daily needs, for my spiritual needs, but also to, that he never sleeps. He's, he's always at work even when I'm resting. But again, Israel fails. <laughs> they go out like, yo, we can double up. <laughs> Maybe this time we'll get that secret stuff that don't melt. <laughs> again, rebellion. Lastly, we need to remember he provides unto the promised land. He provides unto the promised land. Look at verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna, and the word manna sounds like what is that? So they ask the question, what is that? The Hebrew word sounds like manna. They call it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Again, healthy duck donuts. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that it may, they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And then we get a, a note uh, from a compiler or Moses himself perhaps. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable, uh, habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Omer is the tenth part of an epaph. So notice what we see. God establishes this pattern, this work, this rest. He provides for their needs, and he says, put some manna in a jar, and then put it in the testimony. What this is is the Ark of the Covenant. Read Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. What's in the Ark of the Covenant later is the Ten Commandments, the tablets themselves, Moses' rod, and a jar with some bread in it. To remind Israel, God took care of you. He met your needs. You keep this in the holiest of holies. You keep this in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, he provides unto the promised land. All the way up until he takes them into Canaan. Forty years, they wake up, healthy duck donuts on the grass. Quail for dinner. Bread and meat. Bread and meat. Forty years, supernaturally, he takes care of them. And this jar is meant to remind them he took care of you all the way up until the promised land. To remind them. He provided for them in a supernatural way. And friends, in Christ, we have the same promise. He has provided for us, and he will provide for us what we need, the rest that we need, and the goodness that we need to get into glory. That is the new heavens and the new earth. So at this point, I hope you see two things very clearly. Number one, we've all failed the grumbling test. Number two... We need reminding of God's sovereign grace to transform our hearts so that we would not grumble. We all need the pursuing and providing grace of God that started us to keep us until the very end. But we must end today asking the question, but what about that failed test grade? We've all failed the grumbling test. God is gracious, but how can God deal with sinners who've rebelled against him and keep rebelling against him. What about the test score? <laughs> like, is God just? Does he say don't sin, but then it's like, nah, it doesn't matter. Is he just? That's, like, that's a question we should ask as we're going through this. Lord, how can you keep forgiving and they keep rebelling and that be okay? It shouldn't be okay. Justice should come to those who rebel. Oh, but, but I rebelled. I'm the grumbler. So again, this should be in our hearts. This should be Question, how can God let us into heaven if we keep failing? So if he saved us and we never sinned again, it would make sense to let us into heaven. But if he saved us, we got out of bondage, we were set free, 
and we struggle with some besetting sins like grumbling or anxiety, how is God just to save us from our sins? Our final meditation, Jesus is the true and better Israel and the bread of life. So I want you to think just for a minute with me through the gospel realities about this as a Christian. Israel, God's son, failed the test in the wilderness, grumbling over and over for 40 years, including grumbling as we've studied today because they were hungry. Just before Jesus' public ministry was launched, Matthew chapter 4, we read this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, interesting, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40, interesting, days and 40 nights, he was hungry, interesting. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, interesting. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The temptation of Jesus, too often you read it and think, oh, this is about teaching me to memorize Scripture. Sure, you should memorize Scripture. Sure, we see Jesus win in spiritual warfare because he has Scripture memorized. It's so much bigger than that. He's driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's the true Israel. He's the true Son of God. Israel failed. Somebody's got to succeed. Jesus succeeded. <laughs> 40 days fasting, he's hungry. Satan's like, you've got the power. Turn these stones to bread. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Christ in this moment says, no, I will not feed myself. I will trust my Father's heavenly provision, his provision, his timing, his way. I'm hungry. He will feed me because he's good. Israel failed. Jesus, the true Israel. Success. Jesus is the true and better Israel because he passed the test. Israel failed. He didn't grumble. Instead, he trusted his heavenly father. But not only does he pass the non-grumbling test as the son of God. Later in his ministry, he miraculously feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. And there are 12 baskets left over, just like there were 12 streams of water last week. Disciples, tribes of Israel. And yet... The miracle gets questioned. Do you know how they question him? John chapter 6, verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you... He just fed about 10,000-something people with five fish and two loaves. And they talk about, show us a sign. Our, but and then they tell him why. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. So they're like 5,000 women plus women and children. Ah, that's nothing. Moses... Fed them for 40 years in the wilderness with manna from heaven. What you got for that, Jesus? Jesus responds and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. <laughs> so he's like, first of all, you need to know something. Moses is not the one who gave the bread. That was my father. And my father gave that bread to let you know he's going to give the true bread, which gives life to everyone. Not just to Israel, but to the whole world. They're like, bet it up. Let's have the bread. Like, let's have, okay, that's great. You fed us once. Let's do it again. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So he's like, no, no, I'm the bread of life. You're, you're wanting to be fed? Here I am. And they just said, let us have this bread. How do you think they're going to respond? Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Skip down to verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I would give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now what's he saying? Just before his body is broken on the cross for sinners that he pursues, just before his blood is spilled, he's saying, no, the bread of life, the way you have eternal life, the way you pass the test is admitting your guilt and failure as a grumbler. Me succeeding in your place, not grumbling and complaining, but doing everything Israel should have done, I've done it. And not only am I true in the, the true and better Israel, I'm the true and better bread. I'm the very bread of life. You eat from me. You take from my body. This is what he does then when he comes to the Passover meal with his disciples just before he's crucified and died. He, he transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper. said, this is my body. This is the bread taken. This is what we look to. This is what we celebrate. We feast on Christ. And we live forever. He's demonstrating that when I resurrect from the grave, I've showed you I am the bread of life. You can trust in me, you can feast on me, you can feast on me now, and you'll feast on me forever. That will get you to the promised land. Jesus is the true and better manna from heaven that feeds us eternal life. All you must do is believe. And he says, I take on the judgment you deserve, and I give you the life that I have earned. This is why Jesus teaches us how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. He's showing, no, 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 I am the daily bread. And when you have relationship with me, then Yahweh himself is your father. And you can pray and say, our father, give me what I need today. Jesus says, this is what it's like to pray when you have Yahweh as your father. Give us this day our daily bread Sinner, do not feel pursued even now. Remember our sovereign God pursues sinners, even and especially grumbling ones. Remember that he will provide for your daily needs. Did not Christ later in the Sermon on the Mount say, Therefore, do not be anxious, 
What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These things will be added unto you. Your Father will take care of you. He will take care of you. He will take care of you. You're anxious because you don't believe he will take care of you, but he's gracious. He will take care of you. Our Father, meet our daily needs. Remember he'll provide for your daily needs. And remember he provides rest for your souls. Did not Christ say, come to me all who are labor and heavy laden? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember to trust him to carry you to the promised land. For as Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. If you said it, we believe it. Lord, we need you. He will hold me fast until my, my faith becomes sight. What a God. What a beautiful name that we should respond and sing praise to. There is no God like our God. I want to conclude with just one simple application for the believer and then another for the non-believer. For the believer, this ought to motivate personal evangelism in your life. You are guilty of grumbling. God is guilty of so much grace. Dealing with your grumbling. Saving you, setting you free. Sanctifying and maturing you. Promising to take you to glory. How could you not go tell someone about this God? This week at Soccer Nights, you're going to come in contact with people who need hope. People whose souls are starving. Literally, spiritually starving. (laughs) And you have the bread of life. How could you hold out? Offer the bread of life to those who don't know him and your family, your friends, and at work and at soccer nights. And non-Christian friend, you don't have to be hungry or thirsty any longer. Look to Christ. Find rest for your souls from now into glory. Talk to one of us about what that looks like. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for Christ.